With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Accepting Alice. This is Peach Blossom singing Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant theme song with my dad. She and my dad have been friends since they were in the iconic hippie cult classic movie in 68, 1969. My dad thought I should chat with her. Now, he didn't know if she'd been involved in the smuggling industry, but he was pretty sure she'd have something interesting to say. And he was right. I remember one time we had a bunch of weed. And I, I think it was like on this seat and it was in a bag or something like that. And we had to very quickly get rid of it. And we had a dirty car. We had, you know, cartons and things, bags all over this floor. At the moment we had to get rid of it, all I did was throw it on the floor under my feet. And so the cop made the driver get out of the car and he was being really shitty to him because he was real blown out, long hair. You know, and I'm just sitting there waiting, and he comes around, he opens my side, and he's like, what's that? And I had a bag of hair. I had cut Billy's <laughs> hair, and I had a bag of hair on the floor. Oh, my God. And right next to it, under the other foot, was this big bat of very bustable pie. And I said, that's hair. And he said, what are you talking about? That's hair. And I said, hair, 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 hair. See, hair, hair. <laughs> and the guy was so grossed out and so like hair who drives around with a bag of hair in their car that he just like go away you're disgusting and you know left me alone and didn't ask me to raise my other foot oh my god I mean, shit like that so as we've been making this podcast my dad will keep having revelations that people he knew in the old days and thought were straight were actually smugglers as well just the other day, he ran into an old Mill Valley neighbor who revealed he'd been tabbing acid in the 80s. Dad didn't know because, like him, everyone else was private about their business dealings, too. One of those people is Candy Can. You were never meant to know that I was a pot dealer, but I came out of the closet pretty violently. I got busted with just a horrible scene. This is Candy Can. I've known her since I was about nine. She's the mother of one of my childhood friends from the hippie theater community I'm a part of. Although I've known her forever, Candy Can and I have newly become friends in my adulthood. I always vaguely knew she worked in the pot industry, but it wasn't until she finished sharing her unbelievable tale with me that we realized she worked in the same network as my dad. They had inadvertently worked together for over 20 years and shared the same close friend colleagues. 
the same people who were our super close family friends while I was growing up. We were all surprised, especially my dad, who sort of knew Candy Can from a distance, but thought she worked with a different smuggling ring. Where is she? They ran into each other at a hippie theater reunion party recently, and it was incredible to watch my dad and Candy Can talk about the old days. I'd never seen my dad talk openly about his former business in semi-public with anyone, ever. So how did you meet these guys? Because you're not a New Yorker, are you? I was a hippie. Well, I, that part I know. <laughs> and I was, um, I had this, ha- uh, a store in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, you moved in Boulder. Boulder. And they told me, asked me to come to New York. In this episode, we're uncovering the stories of Peach Blossom and Candy Can. Their stories are incredible and illustrate how this world we lived in and my dad worked in was incredibly small and interconnected and totally secretive. They tell daring tales about smuggling, being a woman, and mothers in the industry. And like my dad, what they gained and what they lost by working in vintage cannabis trafficking. I'm Rainbow Valentine, and this is Disorganized Crime, Smuggler's Daughter. documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon. Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've talked a little bit about the 1969 movie Alice's Restaurant before. Alice's Restaurant is a hippie cult classic movie based on the hit folk song by Woody Guthrie's son, Arlo Guthrie. The movie was written and directed by Academy Award-nominated director Arthur Penn, who also directed Bonnie and Clyde. Alice's Restaurant the Movie is a satire about government bureaucracy and the draft, following the main character, played by Arlo Guthrie, as he's deemed undraftable because of his criminal record as a litter bug. The movie is set in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, in the Berkshire Mountains, where my dad, after quitting college and successfully failing his draft review, moved and became a candle maker. It's where he met several of his lifelong friends, including Peach Blossom. Like my dad, Peach Blossom was an extra in the movie. Yeah, I have a speaking line, oh, which, was, which was rare. <laughs> it was at the Thanksgiving dinner 
our uh, VW van pulls up <laughs> with the big TRA triangle on it, and we unload a donkey. I say, hey, you can ride him to Canada. And Billy says, I was wondering how to get my ass across the border. So it's a line in the thing. Peach Blossom moved to the Berkshires after graduating from an Ivy League college. She and her crew of bohemian hippie friends worked odd blue-collar jobs and grew pot on their land. Peach Blossom pushed around a food cart, and she worked as a psychedelic baker at one point. I used to make recipes in big buckets and just take a whole kilo of pot and make butter, you know, in the water and let it seat and then make brownies that would basically cripple people for weeks. At this time in her life, Peach Blossom was a full convert to psychedelics and pot and a proud hippie driving a beat-up VW van with long hair and bell-bottoms. Now, in many ways, Peach Blossom's story mirrors my dad's. She's a Brooklyn-born intellectual psychedelic enthusiast who eventually ended up in Northern California. She got out of smuggling in the late 70s, though, and she now works in medicinal herbs. She discovered hallucinogens while attending Cornell University when friends introduced her to mescaline and the benefit of psychedelically communing with nature. And I loved it. My world changed. My connection with nature just completely completely blossomed. I was talking to trees. I was sleeping with them. I was, you know, there was no division between me and nature. And I felt like everyone should have that experience. So I'd love to turn you on. I mean, that becomes your mantra when the world is so new and we are the first wave of people actually experiencing this. Um, When I went back to where my mother moved in Texas to visit my family, of course I stashed whatever drugs I could into tampons and resealed them. Um, You know, I found various ways to travel with as much weed as I could and um, psychedelics. And, of course, my mission was to go home and turn my mother on and turn my little sisters on and... This didn't go over very well, by the way, (laughs) with my mother. In the early 1970s, after Alice's restaurant, Peach Blossom moves back to New York City and becomes involved in high-stakes smuggling. I moved to New York for a while, and I was involved in, in the pop world, and my partner at the time, ended up going to prison. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Tell us about, tell me about that. What happened? He was involved in a brotherhood that went from California to the East Coast, transporting large amounts of both LSD and, and pot. But he was actually arrested for an LSD conspiracy. And we were living together on East 4th Street between A and B. What year is this? Um, This is about 1970. When my partner on 4th Street, when he went to prison, we had a lot of cash in the apartment. We had suitcases of cash. How much? Oh, I'm sure we had, I'm sure we had 200,000 in cash at one point. It's 1970. Mm Mm-hmm. Holy shit. And the part of the really chilling is that when the feds came to get him for this LSD conspiracy, it was a federal bust. Mm. They got him on a conspiracy, which is a particular term meaning meaning it's a federal charge. And in the apartment, they searched the apartment and they found a suitcase that had, I'm sure, 80 grand in it. And it was never reported. They didn't report, they just took it? The detectives took it. That was just the cost of doing just what happened back in the day. Peach Blossom moves west and is briefly immersed in L.A.'s film scene. She's writing screenplays, but eventually feels compelled to escape the hardships inherent to L.A. However, she needed money to return to New England. So she gets a job moving a steamer trunk of pot from L.A. to Boston. I basically checked in a steamer, you know, a big old-fashioned trunk filled with bricks of pot. How many pounds? 30 pounds. But this is on, like, United Airlines. Oh, my God. 
This was the luggage I checked. You checked this? You I could checked, just check luggage. I checked it in. And at this point, I look like a sort of like wild fashion model, mm. you know, and I'm pulling that off and dressing that way and talking that up. Mm. So I'm leaving L.A. and I'm going back to, you know, Newing, you know, to Boston. Mm. And um, I have to add at this point, I'm using way too much cocaine. Okay. Yeah. This is my this is my shot of courage to do that. But I'm also losing weight like every second. I remember the moment where I walked to the back of the plane to the bathroom and went into the bathroom and basically my pants fell off. I mean, I was so, so skinny. It was just awful. I get to Boston and it is the first time in all my smuggling adventures that I freak out. I am like, I could be so busted here. And now I have to go down to baggage claim and I have to claim my trunks. And now everyone looks like a fed. Everyone looks like a cop. Everyone. I literally have to go into the bathroom, throw cold water all over myself. And I'm in a total lather of sweat and nerves. And I have to go with my claim ticket and claim this trunk. Because I swear, I'm going to get busted and put away forever. And I claim it. And it's absolutely fine. And as I'm leaving the Boston airport, there's a policeman, a Boston cop. And he's looking at me. Is a whole line of people, and I'm, I've got a big cart with all my shit on there. And he's just looking at me with that Boston cop look, which you can't tell is hello or I'm going to get you kind of thing. And I get to the door, and he goes, coming in from California. And I'm like, yes, officer. And he's like, Welcome to Boston, man. Big smile. I'm like, thank you. He loads it into the taxi cab. (laughs) And I get in the cab and I'm like, I will never do this again. I'll never smuggle drugs again. I absolutely will be good. I will not smuggle drugs again. And I deliver it and I get my money. And and really, that was the last. No, it wasn't the last time. It was like being a woman in the industry. I took advantage of the looks and the sass and my fast, quick New York street mouth. I basically sort of shook my tail or wagged my tongue to get out of, out and in to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were a woman back then, If you were a quiet woman, you were probably at the effect of the discrimination that was was just de rigueur. It was the way it was. But if you were a ballsy woman, you caught people off guard. So women have always been a part of the smuggling industries, and utilizing feminine fashion and beauty to accomplish the job is an age-old tradition. In the 17 and 1800s, British women smuggled animal bladders filled with contraband liquor under giant hoop skirts. Now, during American Prohibition in the 1920s, many women became rum runners, one of the few viable ways for women to earn a robust living. The smuggling industry is stressful with extreme highs and lows. And like my dad, Peach Blossom tried to leave the smuggling industry more than once. In 1972, Peach Blossom gives up on the drug world and becomes a macrobiotic meditator. I move to Boston and I'm involved in very rigid kind of studying acupressure and acupuncture. And I go to the New England School of Acupuncture and I work in the macrobiotic community and I do all this stuff for a good six years. And then in 1978, I actually, and I'm single during this time, and I'm very busy doing all kinds of stuff. But in 1978, I couple with a man who was um, native Californian, but living in Boston, has a very prestigious job in the natural foods industry, as do I. And we couple and get pregnant. And right after the birth of my second son, my baby daddy there decides to go into big time 
pot smuggling, hash smuggling business in California. And we wrote, we actually moved to California at that point. And that is exactly the world that we're in. Where are you? Where we moved to Studio City. Oh, you're in LA. LA. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to the Central Coast where we put up greenhouses and we have 17 acres of growing. Oh my God. And this is 1979. 17 acres Mm -hmm. of growing. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. In greenhouses. And we're growing magic mushrooms and pop. And we have German trained attack dogs. And we have miles of fencing around our property. Now, unlike my dad, Peach Blossom said she was around plenty of guns. Did you ever see a gun? Oh, of course. We owned guns. You owned guns? Mm-hmm. Oh, my dad when we, when we moved, song. yeah. When yeah. we moved to Studio City, mm-hmm. we were involved with pot, not cocaine. However, L.A. drug scene, they had guns. And they also were the kind of people that wanted to know where your family lived. Oh, shit. I got trained on a, you know, on a, on a firearm. Whoa. Yeah. Just because there is that risk when you're involved in the black market. There are black market criminals that, you know, that's it's an easy mark. Yeah. Yeah, so... But I'm basically living in this project with my two little babies. Oh, my God. Okay, and it's really crazy. And we make a lot of money. Enough for me to move off the pot ranch and take my babies even further north. Because it's clear to me, I can't raise babies on a pot ranch. This is really not working. I can't even have a babysitter. I can't have a friend. I can't, you know, it's crazy. Peach Blossom finally gets fed up and, taking her kids, leaves her husband in the pot farm. And she eventually quits the pot industry completely to work in the legal herb industry. First tea, and then medicinal herbs. The part of Peach Blossom's story that stays with me is her inability to get a babysitter because of her work-at-home situation. It's these small things we take for granted and don't think twice about that smugglers with kids have to consider. Smugglers like Peach Blossom and my dad are people trying to make a living pay the mortgage, and occasionally have a date night without the kids. Another thing that strikes me about Peach Blossom's story is the fact that the seemingly more ruthless L.A. smuggling world she found herself in was an option for my dad. If my dad had been less adverse to violence and guns and hungry for the easy money cocaine brought, he could have worked in the L.A. smuggling subculture. If my dad had entered the world that Peach Blossom found herself in, Guns would have been a part of my dad's life, and by default, our family's life. Today, Peach Blossom works in the medicinal cannabis industry in California, advocating the healing elements of the Schedule One drug, estimated by the federal government to have no medical benefits. Individual states and cities are challenging and changing cannabis laws to reflect growing evidence of cannabis's medical applications. Cannabis has been the poster child plant for our generation. Absolutely came out and said, we are going to change a whole lot of things. And cannabis has been leading us to do that. I really feel that way. Yeah. Change the laws change the emotions, change the consciousness, change so much about our world. And and that's what Cannabis the Queen does. Coming up, I talk with Candy Can, another badass woman who worked in pot smuggling, but with much more harrowing consequences than peach blossoms. I'm Rainbow Valentine, and you're listening to Disorganized Crime, Smuggler's Daughter. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's exciting episode of Questing for the Golden Nun. And now we join the infamous good benefactor with his able-bodied assistant, Toothpick. Oh, Toothpick! This is an excerpt from Questing for the Golden Nun, an absurdist radio play I co-created and co-produced in the early 90s with a hippie theater community I've been a part of my whole life. Are you a good nun or a bad nun? We must stop the golden nun, for it is the key! The key! The key! Let's board them! I'm pretty sure we recorded Questing for the Golden Nun on a vintage 80s boombox where you use two fingers to press play and record at the same time. Take note, kids, this was made way before the internet or cell phones. Now, my hippie theater community is a creative paradise for weirdos, and many of the people involved are, like me, the children of the counterculture insiders. One friend calls us the hippie mafia, a perfect description. Now, like I mentioned earlier, Candy Can is the mother of a friend I've had since childhood, and she's a part of my hippie theater community. While producing this podcast, my mind and my dad's mind were blown to learn that Candy Can worked in the same smuggling network as my dad. My dad calls his crew disorganized crime. Candy Can calls it the anti-network network because everyone was in the same network, but nobody networked. Now, Candy Can worked in different roles than my dad, and her story reveals another side of the same story that my dad and inadvertently me were in. You were never meant to know that I was a pot dealer. But I came out of the closet pretty violently. I got busted with just a horrible scene. So let me go back to the beginning. I was 13 years old and my brothers were in college. And in Wyoming, you could get a driver's license. So I got a driver's license and they threw pot in the trunk. And I would drive Mexican weed to the frat houses. For me, it was a liberation because I felt that marijuana was one of the best highs you could ever get. I'm a pot-loving human being, and I knew it from an early age. Candy Can is 13, driving kilos of pot to frat houses in Wyoming, Colorado, and Arizona. Her brothers dealt the pot, and she was the driver. At 13, people. Now, when she was a little older... She started dealing herself. I was started selling pot in high school. And I sold pot to the rabbi's son, <laughs> to the priest's son, to everybody's... Every kid bought pot for me, and somebody got busted by their parents. And they called the police. Oh, my God. And my father had the cops waiting at the house, and I saw them there, and I took off down the road, and I hitchhiked. And I got on a frozen french fry truck for Howard Johnson's. And we drive, and we get to Florida, and I call my brother, and my brother says, it's okay, Dad forgives you, they're not going to arrest you, you should come back and go to college, you should come back and go to college. So he flew out, and we rode the train back. And I got home, and it was really bad, and the high school teacher said to me, if there was acid in this apple, would you eat it? And I said to him, yes. Candy Can is super smart. She finished high school and college. She opens a psychedelic clothing store in Colorado. By owning and operating this store, she got to meet all sorts of interesting people. 
She's vague on the details on who and when everything got going. But much like my dad, she fell into a world of psychedelic people and smugglers. And she said that she and her crew had a mission to get as much pot to the people as possible. Whereas my dad worked exclusively in distribution with only his handful of guys, Candy Can worked for and with the larger group, becoming a chief logistics person wearing a lot of different hats. She likes the alias Candy Can because she was a can-do woman, and she always got whatever job that needed to be done, done. We had boats. I would take the typewriter out and write registries and fake addresses and bring ports through. I'd fly to places like Tunisia with a half a million dollars rolled up in the New York Sunday paper. I would bring weed to the sailors that were waiting to fill up the boats. I'd smuggle into places like Tunisia and Egypt and if they caught you, I remember the guy was holding up my bag and he said, did you like John Lennon? I said, he died and it was really bad and that was a bag that had the pot in it and he put it down and I walked through. She gets married, has a daughter, and continues her life as a smuggler. I've already been married now, had a kid. My husband started doing cocaine. It was bad, really bad. And we were in Florida, and at this point, I had rented a series of houses on the Lagunas, and we'd have boatloads coming up from Columbia. And we had cigarette boats that would go from the boat to the dock, the boat to the dock. And my daughter learned how to walk around on bales because Hot the, bales. Yeah, because the house was so filled. We're talking twin vans that would carry a thousand pounds each out a day. Sometimes we'd have three vans that looked exactly the same so the neighbors wouldn't suspect. And I was the front. I rented all the houses under aliases and my beautiful daughter and I was a great actress. Time goes on. I've been working this profession now from Florida. Then we moved. Everybody wanted to come to California. Florida's nice. Colombian weed is good. Thai weed is better. I mean, we had the black whack. There were times that I'd get on, on an airplane with these ginormous suitcases for the stewardess, and they allowed you to take two on board, packed to the gills with black whack Colombian weed. Oh my God. And smile and just bring the two cases onto the airplane, fly to New York, take a cab, and take it up some stairs. I did that. How did you mask the smell? I wore perfume. And I had, I wore garters and beautiful short skirts. Oh, yeah, you're a tall, beautiful woman. People, I took advantage of my good looks in a way that furthered people to believe me. I don't mean to come off any other way, but it helped me. It furthered me to be... I couldn't have done it if I was a guy. And I was wearing designer clothes. And I was... I took my daughter when she was six years old to uh, France and London and bought her all her school outfits. But what she didn't know is I brought over close to, you know, $700,000 on my body strap. But we had a great vacation. Like Peach Blossom and women throughout history, Candy Can uses her beauty to her advantage. All resources are an asset. Candy Can says that her first marriage was tumultuous. Like my parents, she's avidly against cocaine and hard drugs. Her husband, though, was an addict and using coke all the time. He also started smuggling cocaine. One day, she came home to her husband and toddler to discover cocaine lying out on the table within reach of her kid. That's when she knew she had to leave him. And he took my daughter, and he left me in a house with no money and all. He took everything. He absolutely took everything. And I had bills, and I didn't have my daughter. So I put the word out, because I knew everyone, and I started driving truckloads of marijuana between Miami and New York. And each truckload, I'd get 20 grand at a pop, and then I would... I managed to get make enough money to hire the best attorney in New York to prove 
that he was lying and that I deserved to have my kid. And I got my kid back and I retired for a little bit. So Candy Can becomes a single mother, and along with the legal bills to win custody of her child, life is expensive. Street jobs don't pay nearly enough. It's really hard to make $12 an hour and raise a family. It's really hard. And I wanted to provide the best, so I started working for some people on the West Coast, and I just didn't go back to my straight job. I just stayed in California and said, screw this. I'm, I'm going to have time with my kids. And I stayed in California, and we were, at this point, having sophisticated electronics. This is the first time that you, did, you weren't hired to sit in a house 24 hours a day in case the phone rang, and it was the people. So you have to sit by a phone like 24 hours, 24-7? Yeah. That, that, that was your job. How much were you paid to do that? When the deal came through, I would get a box of money. I sent my daughter to school with a shoebox, and she had money in it. I said, here's your college education. She has a lucky streak with her colleagues. Boatload after boatload is coming in. But then her associates got busted. They were coming to the house, and I managed to escape. They, it was very close because I had rented all the houses, and there was the man was coming to the house, and I don't know what got me out of there, but... I had to go do something for my kid or something, and I left the house. And they came, and I wasn't there, and I escaped. And it was touch and go. I had to live very differently after that. She moves with her daughter to Hawaii in a communications position. Now, this is someone who relays info between smugglers, like when loads come in and where they're offloaded. She deals with the logistics, like bill paying for the safe houses, trucks, phones, pagers, etc. She's the intermediary between the big international smugglers and the offloaders, transporters, and distributors, like my dad and his buddies. So we were the anti-networkers. We would have to wait in separate rooms while certain people came in and out. No one could meet anyone, because if one person got busted, they could snitch you out. We were the absolute anti-network. No one knew anybody's name. We didn't want to know each other's name. I had many different nicknames. And sometimes we would all be together, and the only way you could communicate is if you were at a certain payphone at a certain hour on a certain day. Candy Can has another child with a smuggler who unfortunately gets busted and goes to a Thai prison for 12 years. And I'm penniless with a baby and a daughter, and everything's gone like that. And I had to do things that were essential, like take the stroller into the supermarket, buy some food, but throw in the milk underneath the kid because I couldn't afford all the food. It was tough. I ended up having to give up my identity, which was so real that I had four birth certificates for my son. I thought, well, I don't know if we're going to have to move or what or this or that. And it was a home birth, so I got four birth certificates for him. So we left Hawaii, and we had to travel and not even go in the country in case there was an indictment for me. My lawyer said, leave the country. She starts traveling, visits the West Coast acid King Owsley, who had moved to Australia in the 80s. This was a somewhat common place for the psychedelic pioneers of my subculture to go when things got too hot at home. Visit Owsley in Australia. So once things settle down and became less hot, Candy Can heads back to the States yet again. She gets straight jobs. But once again, a single mother of two needs money to live on. So once again, she jumps back into smuggling. It's the early 1990s. So we get a good run. We're bringing in shit. 
left and right, and the man is on our tail like Tom and Jerry. We're, we <laughs> slip out the door, they're over there. Everything was just surreal to think that I lived that life. As my lawyer told me later, no one would believe it. She's on a delivery job, and she hires this driver on recommendation from a friend. And that's when everything falls apart. I hired a driver from a friend. He goes into the bar and drinking, and he starts, somebody in the bar said, hey, do you know where I can get some hash? I'm really looking for hash. I want to buy hash. And he's in the bar, and he says, sure, I can get you. And he said, how much you want? So man knew it was in. It's 100 pounds. So he comes back. And he lies. He says, I, one of my good buddies that I've known forever cash for 100 pounds. And I said, look, it's already sold. We're transporting it. It's leaving town. We never sell in town. You know that's not the, the way the rules work. People have dibs on this. And really, I know a lot of distributors. And it's really important to keep that under our hat. That's why we were doing so good. And he goes, no, no, no. So he convinces everybody to let him have this 100 pounds. He gets busted. This guy at the bar turns him in, and he immediately rolls. When somebody rolls, they say, I'll tell you anything. I'll do anything. Just let me go. Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. So he calls me up, and I meet him in a parking lot. And he's, we're talking. And he said, can you talk louder? I go, what's wrong? Just speak Come here closer. Let's talk louder. Well, one thing leads to another, and the next thing I know, I'm sitting in federal detention, and they're sending me notes underneath the uh, door that I'm facing 25 years to life. Oh, my God. And would I talk about it? And I, the only questions that I answered is, what about my children? What about my children? Do you have kids? I have kids. And the only thing I would talk about was my kids. I stayed in prison, and I prayed, and I meditated, and I made the walls speak to me, and I did every magical incantation in my mind and in my heart and they stuck me with really terrible people the lady who was in my cell said if you touch me I'll kill you and she had was a violent abusive person and every woman I met in there was drug addicted or poor mostly they got poor women in there because they couldn't afford a phone to call their probation officer and they kept breaking parole And then there was the homeless woman I met who gets herself arrested every winter so she has a warm place to sleep and a meal and a shower. I was in a room where you couldn't lay down and they kept it at about 52 and they wouldn't give you a blanket and you were in the little cotton thing so you were frozen. And somebody would sit outside the door and say, do you want something hot to drink? You want to talk? And uh, there was not a toilet in there either. So I hire a lawyer, and he said, they got you. They got you with the keys. The warehouse had 16 tons. There was 400 grand in the van. They got you. Let's start negotiating a deal. Candy Can's parents are able to post bail, and her lawyers recommend that she take a deal. Remember, they are threatening 25 years to life for pot. And her lawyers are saying maybe they can get her off with just eight. But Candy Can has two young kids. She is determined to keep her family intact and remain free. My lawyer says, I can't do this, and it's a week before the trial. I can't change it. And a friend of mine from my network said, call this guy. So I call him, and he goes, well, you know, once a year, I like to do a big case for free. Oh, my God. I'll do this case for you. 
so it's one week to trial. And he goes, you know, you have a 99.9% chance of going to jail. I go, yeah, that means I have a 0.01% chance of being free. Candy Can decides to tell them the truth. She doesn't use real names, but she's telling the jury her whole life. Every deal, every smuggle. I was being attacked psychically by this prosecutor and attorney who was trying to make me out as a villain for society, for somebody who was not worthy of being a mother to my children. The prosecuting attorney said, she did it. We know she did it. This is a Hail Mary pass. You must convict her. She takes the stand to fight for her life and the lives of her children. And I cry. And I talk about all the years that, as a mother and a parent and struggling to survive and how I thought of one banana is okay, a truckload of bananas is fine. Meaning, you know, you think a joint's okay? Well, why is a truckload of joints not okay? And I cry. And I pray. I have mirrors inside my shoes. I have every soul on the jury I'm communicating with. I'm using all of my psychic energy. My mother and father were there. My kids were there. The jury came back not guilty on all four counts. And I walked out of the courtroom. Candy Can mentioned having mirrors on the bottom of her shoes. Now, there's a superstition that mirrors reflect negative energy. So having them on the bottom of shoes reflects the negative energy away from the wearer, allowing the positive energy to flow in. Did we mention that I come from the hippies? Before the trial, Candy Can was under house arrest for 13 months. The trial took an enormous mental and financial toll on her family and kids. At one point, her parents encouraged her to flee and be a fugitive, but that wasn't a life she wanted. A life where you're always looking behind your back, looking away from your family. And for what? A plant that in our household we like to joke is a vegetable? Candy Can thinks of it as much more than a vegetable. It's not a vegetable. It alters your mind. And that's why they make it illegal. It alters your consciousness. It heals your body. It's not a vegetable. It's mind-altering. It's spiritual. It's my sacred plant. Candy Can's story blows my mind because it's an amazing story exposing the extreme risk undertaken by the pot smugglers of yore and affirms that at any moment in my childhood, something similar could have happened to my parents. Candy Can also reveals to me that my parents, especially my dad, were, like her, actors, storytellers, like me. Candy Can's saga reminds me that my family was incredibly lucky, for the most part. In the next episode, we talk about the main reason my parents were smugglers. Money. Cash. Where to put it, how to clean it, and how to conceal hundreds of thousands in cash from your kids. Plus, a new storage unit stuffed with my dad's secret money laundering weapon. I'm Rainbow Valentine, and this is Disorganized Crime. Disorganized Crime, Smuggler's Daughter, is written and recorded by me, Rainbow Valentine. Our producers are Gabby Watts and Taylor Church. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, Elsie Crowley, and me at School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Charles Bryant at iHeartRadio. Our music is by Gabby Lala and Claire Campbell, with original theme by Mark Karen and me. You can follow us online at disorganizedcrimepodcast.com. Writing our own story, doing as we please. Tamil pies, sleeping princess of the redwood.
She helps us keep it real A handshake seals the deal Grab the stash, seal the meal And load up these old wheels Rolling a doobie Young, rich and groovy Making it up as we roll along Rolling along Far out country road Rolling along Far out country road Rolling along Far out country road Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 